Hey, welcome to Stoner. My guest this week is Elise McDonough. She is the author of Bong Appetit, which is a new weed cookbook from uh, Munchies and Vice. Uh, She is also the author of the High Times Cannabis Cookbook and worked at High Times for many, many years. Uh, As people know, I'm something of an edibles uh, skeptic, but uh, I expect she will probably change my mind. Get in touch. Hi at stoner.co. Here's the show. Welcome, Elise McDonough. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Where am I talking to you from? I am in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, Tell me, uh, what brought you to Santa Cruz in the first place? I moved to California in 2010 uh, with my husband, and we could have moved anywhere, but we were drawn to Santa Cruz because of its progressive history, as well as the activism of groups like WAM and MAPS. And we knew some people in those organizations, so that's what brought us here. Were you guys, were you already working in the weed world when you moved there? Yes, I started working at High Times in 2002. And so I had been there right out of college. Uh, so we decided to move to California and we did that as part of High Times. Like We brought our jobs with us and we uh, established a home office here. Tell me, um, what drew you to working at High Times as a uh, 2002 college graduate? I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and I studied graphic design and marketing and advertising. And I had a very influential teacher named James Victoria in my senior year. And I remember him saying at one point that we should apply to our dream jobs and just, you know, shoot for the moon. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'd really like to work at High Times. And so I applied there and I applied to Rolling Stone and to some other big publications in New York and went and did my interviews and everything. And I remember I got a call one day from the art director at High Times and he was very enthusiastic about me coming aboard. So I did as an intern at first and then, you know, I became a full time staffer and uh, it was a 15 year career there. Were you a a weed enthusiast in college at this point? Yes. It was something that I had always really liked and enjoyed. And so I was interested in making a career out of it any way that I could. I was pretty determined not to end up in a sort of boring corporate job. And it's definitely been anything but boring. It's been extremely exciting. So New York City, circa 2000, uh, we're talking about delivery weed business card and a guy shows up at your door kind of situations? Yeah, it was like you had to know somebody and be referred. And then you could call the bike messenger who would come with the little cubes of all the different things. How um, does that work in the dorms? That's something I had never thought of. Can you get those guys to deliver to a dorm? You know, I never tried it. But the point when I was using delivery services, I was out of college. But um in the dorms, oh my gosh, that was a whole nother story. I had a really interesting experience um, at a building called the George Washington, which is on like 23rd and 3rd, and it's now a freehand hotel. It's now like a super fancy hip hotel, but it used to be this weird little building that was a... So at the time I lived there, it was a halfway house for people who had been released from prison and insane asylums, and the college started slowly taking it over. So some of those people still live there, and we call them the residents. And so uh, we would occasionally trade things with the residents. It was very interesting. 
what was the high times uh, of that period like? It seemed like a publication that was like heavily focused on like how to grow in your closet, like sort of like uh, stealth growing and that kind of stuff. Like what, what was the stuff you worked on during that period? During that period, I was in the art department. So I was mostly working on uh, researching photos. Um, I became their production director. So eventually I was in charge of like shipping all the files to press and like making sure things were laid out correctly for print production. But at the time the content was yes, heavily focused on how to grow indoors, outdoors, wherever, uh, focused on seeds and genetics, um, talking about the different equipment, the lights, you know, every year we had a big issue that was the stash awards. That was all about innovations in indoor growing technology. So that was pretty much what we were focused on was how to survive under prohibition, how to yeah. continue to cultivate cannabis, even when everything was stacked against you. How did photography work for a weed magazine during full national prohibition? Where were you taking the photos? We worked with a handful of photographers who all used aliases and who were very dedicated and connected themselves. And so this was the era when, you know, you literally had to put on a blindfold and like get into the trunks of cars and go to grow rooms. You know, like getting access was extremely difficult back then because these people had a lot to lose, you know. And so inviting a reporter into a grow room, a lot of people just wouldn't do it. And there were a few people who, you know, they wanted the bragging rights. So uh, ego drove them to invite us to see their scenes. Um, but that's kind of I remember the yeah. era of the like the handkerchief over the face, the kind of like uh, disguise uh, was big in the photos. You'd see like guys in front of like a big grow room with the uh, the handkerchiefs over the face. Yes, there was definitely a lot of concern about protecting identities. And um, that's something that's changed radically you know, with the new legalization that's swept the nation um, to the point where sometimes you do have to kind of caution people. If you're still reporting a story that's in a prohibition state, uh, people are much more cavalier about inviting reporters into their ongoing crime scene than they used to be. Yeah. So uh, there's still some caution depending on where you live. Yeah, I feel like um, it's almost like we live in two countries now. And it's a really interesting time for people who are trying to cover both of those countries at once. Um, for a magazine like High Times, it's distributed there. Uh, you've you've done work more recently uh, for the show Bong Appetit, which was on uh, Viceland. You're doing a book for them now. Is that correct? Yes. So I left High Times in uh, spring 2017 to go work on the cookbook for Bong Appetit. So I wrote the cookbook for them. So yeah, it's been a very interesting kind of finding our way in this new legal marketplace in California. What is it like covering this era weed? Having been around for the prohibition, the pure prohibition era, um, is a show like Bong Appetit and the cookbook aimed at uh, the legalization states, or are you walking a line between the black, gray, and uh, legal markets? That was definitely a balancing act in how we designed the book. Um, we very much want it to be relevant to people in prohibition states who are interested in learning how to cook with cannabis, understanding that people in prohibition states are not going to have access to the type of luxurious ingredients that you sometimes see on Bong Appetit. Yeah. You're not going to be so, able to get like pre-made butter that's already like at an exact 
THC content. That and and just a lot of the uh, extracts, you know, the the distillates, the isolates, the terpenes, those things are difficult to access even within California. It's hard to track that stuff down. It can be expensive. You want to be very sparing with it when you cook. So we try to show both sides of that world. You can make you, you can make really yeah. good cannabis food with trim or just with a little bit of bud or whatever you happen to have on hand. Or you can go to this next level where it gets extremely gourmet and you can use, you know, hash that costs $100 a gram to infuse your food. So there's a certainly a big wide world of cannabis cooking now. And what I like about the show and what was so revolutionary about it was just showing how cannabis can be used as an ingredient, how versatile it is in its raw forms, uh, as cured flowers or as fresh leaves, and then go all the way into the super technical extracts and all the different things that you can use, including the terpenes, which allows you to flavor a dish without adding any psychoactivity. So there's just like all these different ways to use cannabis. And I think that Bong Appetit really enlightened the world to that idea. I have to admit that I've been not skeptical of the um, eating revolution, but it, it just like doesn't capture me. I've never had like a huge urge towards it. Like, is this stuff primarily intended as a way to ingest THC or is it more about the like party? Like I actually really like watching Bong Appetit. I just don't have an urge to cook myself. I think it's the type of people who are interested in following chefs and restaurants, you know, people who call themselves foodies and who want to be on the cutting edge trends of things that are happening in the hospitality industry, as well as just people who really love cannabis and who want to integrate it into (laughs) their social scene in a more appealing way and in a super gourmet way. And I think it's kind of the same people who are interested in wine and how to pair wine with food and how to take their experience to the next level. I think cannabis is something that really complements that sort of attitude. I mean, I've also enjoyed beer and have never had the urge to home brew. So I think that there's uh, different strokes for different uh, different folks there. Are you a big home cook? Like, has that always been a big part of your life? Absolutely. You know, I was a teenage vegetarian. And so I kind of remember my mom saying, well, you can eat whatever you want, but you got to make it yourself. Yeah. And so I got into cooking and that's something that I've always really enjoyed. And that's what got me into reporting on edibles. You know, back in the day at High Times, we had a food column. And so sometimes the recipes would come in without photography. So then we would recreate the recipe and we'd photograph it ourselves. And then we got into this tradition of, of sharing our home cooked creations. And that became known as Space Cake Friday. And so um, that went on for a while until it kind of got out of hand. But um, I had always really been interested in the cooking. And that's what motivated me to write the High Times Cannabis Cookbook, which came out in 2012. And then after moving to California and just kind of seeing where the edibles industry was at, you know, it's it's changed tremendously in the last eight years. And so watching that entire evolution has been, you know, just a real honor and a privilege. And it is something that I integrate into my home cooking, you know, fairly often. I just keep a little bit of keef on hand, which is just like, you know, a little bit of unpressed hash. Just use it like a seasoning. You can just sprinkle a little bit into whatever you're eating. And I find that 
I really like the flavor of hash uh, much more than like the kind of grassy flavor when you use flour. I have such a uh, strong memory of being a teenager. I think I was going to uh, Reggae on the River, which was a big... uh, big festival back back in the day in the bay area and uh, i bought like a weed brownie and you could just like taste all the like little bits of like grassiness inside it it was just like one of the worst things i ever voluntarily ate oh yeah everybody's got that story and so it would either get you way 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 too high or it wouldn't get you high at all and um yeah there's frequently a lot of times people would just pour the plant material into the mix And then you'd get, you know, you'd get the extra fiber that was missing in your diet. But yeah, a few important concepts that I think people are starting to grasp is the idea of dosing, the idea of micro dosing, um, as well as the idea of like how to properly make your infusions. And like now there's things like the magic butter machine and all this stuff where you can just kind of set it and forget it. Um, But yeah, yeah, and then a a lot of pre-made products now, too, where you can get ready-made butter and ready-made oil. Uh, makes it a lot easier to infuse. And also kind of this idea of like going beyond brownies. You know, it doesn't have to be in a dessert. It doesn't have to be in a sweet. You can infuse cannabis into whatever food that you're normally eating. And I think that's the healthiest way for people to proceed. The the thing that I didn't really see coming about um, legal edibles was that the uh, primary direction would not just be culinary, but it would be micro dosing and that people would use edibles a way to have like a really regular controlled experience. Um, people who even like minor variations can be like volatile. Um, this idea that you could actually like take the exact same thing multiple times. I didn't realize that would be exactly where people would go with edibles. That's something that I've observed even from the earliest days of, you know, judging the high times cannabis cup in, in the States People really, really want a predictable, consistent experience with edibles. And once you find that brand that you like, that has an effect and an experience that you like, people are going to go back to it again and again and again. Because even if you're living in a state that has regulations, so you can get a gummy, you know, that's five or 10 milligrams and you like that, but then you try a chocolate you know, that has the same dosage level, five or 10 milligrams. And you find that the experience is different. You know, it's different because of the other ingredients. It's different because of how the infusion was made. Um, so there's a lot of technical aspects to making edibles that I think consumers aren't super aware of. Like the idea that if you're eating something that's infused with hash oil versus eating something that's infused with hash that's then infused into butter, you know, that can give you a different effect than just eating the hash oil edible, you know, stuff like that. It gets a uh, very granular as they say, but yeah, people want predictable, consistent effects. And that's something that has been lacking until the last couple of years. What do you recommend for people? I know that you wrote a book while you're still at high times. That was kind of a guide, uh, for people who didn't necessarily know all of this lore and exactly how to get into it. For someone who wants to find that regular edible experience that works for them, but they're like, I know I want it, but I don't know which one it is. Is it hash? Is it hash oil? Is it uh, a dose of this size? Like, how do you recommend people calibrate into that experience? 
Well, the most important thing that we've been repeating over and over to people is to go low and to go slow and like start with the five milligrams, wait two hours because that's how long it takes to fully be processed through your, your body and then see if that dosage level is right for you. If you don't feel the five milligrams, then go a little bit further and then go a little bit further until you find your happy place. Um, most people gravitate towards things like the gummies and the chocolates. Um, chocolate is certainly a really good product for beginners because it's easy to homogenize. So one piece of a chocolate bar is very likely to be an identical experience to another piece of that same bar. Mm. Versus if you get a baked good, just because of the nature of mixing the batter, there's going to be little pockets of butter in one part of it that might make, you know, one section of the brownie stronger than another section of the brownie. That's really tough for the bakers because if you overmix your batter, then you get this like kind of dry treat that, you know, doesn't have the kind of rise that you want it to have and all those things. But yeah, people tend to go for hard candies and they tend to go for the chocolates. And I think that's a good place to start. What, uh, what do you like yourself? Myself, I try to gravitate towards the healthier things. That's always been part of my mission and my messaging is to get people to realize that there's a dangerous addictive drug called sugar and you don't necessarily need to be pairing it with your cannabis all the time. So just getting people to realize that there's savory treats. You know, I like certain crackers. I like granolas. Uh, there's a brand I like a lot called Atlas and they create these sort of uh, sophisticated granola clusters that I really like. Um, I try all kinds of different things. You know, I, I must admit to being a sucker for the chocolates and the cookies, but I try to keep that, you know, as a smaller part of my overall medication strategy. What, um, you moved to, uh, to California in 2010. So you've been, mm -hmm. uh, primely positioned, particularly in Santa Cruz to really, uh, uh see it all. Uh, have access to everything. Has your day-to-day um, -day consumption pattern changed a lot now that you can go buy things at a legal dispensary? I guess 2010, there was already medical dispensaries in 2010, but not recreational dispensaries. I got to say that since I haven't been working for high times, I, I eat a lot less edibles than I used <laughs> to, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, my tolerance has somewhat declined since those days. You know, I, when I was judging the cannabis cup, I could eat 50 to hundred milligrams and maintain, you know, um, which for some people is still a, a low dose. You know, I know people who can eat 500 to a thousand milligrams and they're, they're okay with that. Uh, these days to give people and uh, listening at home an idea, yeah. uh, that's, um, about a uh, 100 to 1,000 times the suggested dose, I would say? Yes. The state defines one dose at 10 milligrams. And these days I like to eat 10 to 25 milligrams. And I'm maybe eating edibles once or twice a week, you know, depending on what's going on. And as far as like being in California since 2010 and seeing everything change, it's been incredibly gratifying. And, you know, I still make a lot of edibles at home myself and I just will put a little bit of infused coconut oil into my oatmeal and like stuff like that. And just trying to like supplement my diet with cannabinoids in a way that supports my overall health and uh, makes sense for being able to function. And yeah, using it as a substitute for alcohol, I think has been tremendously helpful to a lot of people. 
And that's what I look forward to is seeing how our society is going to change in the next five to 10 years once people are really able to make that choice in a social setting. Santa Cruz, uh, I can attest to from um, visiting in the uh, early 1990s a lot, uh, was already a pretty weed-friendly place pre-legalization. But do you find now that it's fully legal that the social stuff has changed? Is it um, different vibe at a party, uh, like, you know, out in, out in the open at a cafe? Well, you're still not supposed to smoke in public, but plenty of people do. Um, Santa Cruz is certainly laid back about that kind of thing. And socially, yes, it's pretty ingrained in the culture here. Um, you're finding more people being accepted, accepting of it, um, including parents. Parenting is still kind of the final frontier. I have some friends who are okay with people you know, smoking in the backyard while their kids are present and some people who don't want their kids to see any kind of smoking at all. So that's another thing where the edibles come in. As long as you're able to keep edibles away from your kids, it is a nice way to be able to medicate discreetly um, without them noticing that, hey, what are those people smoking? I thought smoking was bad. Um, so there's still kind of this paradigm shift away from smoking and towards like more discreet ways of using cannabis. I, I noticed that you use the phrase uh, medicate when you for um, tell tell me what that means to you. It's interesting because there's, you know, the state has forced this idea of a dichotomy of cannabis use, either it's medical or it's recreational. And I think what a lot of people are finding is that it's usually a little bit of both. You know, obviously there's some people who need it to treat a chronic illness who use it as medicine and they have to have it in order to function at all. But there's plenty of people who just prefer it to other recreational substances. And so when I say medicate, it's still kind of a slang term that sneaks in there. You know, I'm trying to sometimes uh, use the word cannabinate <laughs> as sort of a new word. Um, but medicating means to me just getting yourself to a level and balanced place. Like you might not be totally high, you're just kind of subtly maintaining um, a place where you feel good. Has that like place shifted for you over time? Yes. And I've done a lot of research into the endocannabinoid system, which is, you know, a part of our human body that everyone has that helps you regulate homeostasis and regulate your health. And so I feel that there's plenty of people who need to supplement their endocannabinoid systems but you can go too far and you don't necessarily need to saturate yourself with it all day, every day. You know, I like to think of cannabis as a vitamin. And I wrote an article about this called uh, vitamin THC. It was one of the last features that I wrote for high times. And I made the comparison of cannabis deficiency disorder to scurvy. You know, a lot of people didn't know what caused scurvy you know, eventually it was revealed to be a lack of vitamin C. And so I think cannabis is very much the same way. I think that people need to use it as a vegetable and as a vitamin. And then once you've supplemented your system and you're feeling really good and you're in good health, you might want to use it a little bit here and there, you know, for spiritual purposes or, you know, relaxation purposes or to elevate other things in your life, to elevate experiences like, you know, dining or sex or what have you. But you don't necessarily need to like bombard yourself with cannabinoids all the time. You know, if you think of it like a vitamin, 
you can have too much of a good thing. You can have too much vitamin D or too much iron. So I urge people to think of it in, in that way and to really find their correct balance that works for them. Yeah, I think that issue of balance has become uh, slightly more complicated in this era of um, endless supply and bounty. Whereas uh, I used to feel like, uh, like I smoke a little less weed when like I run out of weed and like, you know, it's inconvenient. And then I smoke some more when I have some weed. And it feels now, particularly when I visit legalization states, just like the weed just overfloweth. And, and I, I assume that in your high times days too, uh, in the same way I have trouble uh, not snacking in any sort of an office with snacks. I'm assuming being around that world, you're bombarded with uh, weed opportunities. Uh, how, how do you like personally modulate, um, you know, what's the, what's too much for you and, and when you need to pull back? I sort of will pull back if I find myself being groggy when I'm waking up. Um, that tends to tell me that I'm, you know, my system is just kind of full and, uh, if I'm getting really good sleep and I feel really good, you know, usually I'll wake up and, and have energy. And if you wake up and you don't have that much energy, that could be just, you know, from a little bit too much cannabis, especially when you're eating it. Um, you know, as far as the explosion of cannabis in California, I mean, it's always been here all along, but now there's all these new products and all these new brands. So there is this temptation to try everything. You know, yeah. you want to try every single new product. Um, and I do, I just take a little, you know, a little tiny bit of something. You don't have to smoke the whole joint. You can just smoke, you know, a little bit of it if you are trying to moderate your use. For you, have other of the new fangled experiences been interesting? There is a very interesting product that I worked with uh, the people developing it and I helped them, you know, kind of with some of their marketing research and messaging is a group called Olo and they created a sublingual strip that you put under your tongue and it is composed of cannabinoids and terpenes and it's designed to give you these distinct functional experiences, mm. which I've seen the market trending that way for a while because there's a lot of new consumers who they just, they don't want to learn about sativa and indica and a thousand strain names. They just want to know how is this going to make me feel? The Humboldt pen is another yes. uh, thing that's marketed, yes. which is now the dosist pen. Uh, yeah, had they had one, to change the name. One to of their scientists yeah. on on last year, and similarly, it's marketed with a uh, buzzword that uh, tells you how you're going to feel. Yes, and so I'm seeing a lot more new products come out with that kind of focus. Um, you know, products that are intended to aid some kind of mood or activity. And so what the Olo people did was they made four experiences that are social, chill, active, and focus. And they really dialed in the science, you know, and they did a lot of um, work to make sure that those were distinct and different. Whereas I feel some people are just marketing things that way and saying, oh, it's a sativa, so it's focus. Whereas other people are really breaking it down to its cannabinoid components and creating these sort of designer cannabis products, which I think, it, you know, I really think it's going to revolutionize medicine and a lot of other things in the next 10 years because we're going to be able to harness the true potential of this plant in a way that we haven't been able to until recently. I'm, I, I totally agree with you. Of all of the new ideas from the legalization era, this is the one that I feel like most 
closely connects with what consumers want, uh, at least among people I've talked to. There's this misperception when you go into a dispensary and you see this list of strains that you're like, wow, it's all available to me. But I feel a little bit like it's if you went into a pharmacy and had to um, mix the chemicals for your own medication. It's just like it's a little bit above most people's uh, grasp on this stuff to really choose an experience based on a bunch of strains. Yes. And that was something that was very interesting about being in-house at a dispensary was seeing this barrier to entry and sort of watching these people walk in the door for the first time who have no idea what any of these products are. And they're, they're like a deer in the headlights, you know? Yeah. And so that was a fascinating part about seeing the inner workings of, you know, the dispensary retail experience and just that people are befuddled when it comes to learning about all the different strain names. You know, it's like me going into a wine store, you know, I've put in some effort to learn about wine. I know the things that I like, but I still don't know all of the nuances between the different grapes and the different vintners and all that. And so it's that level of connoisseurship with cannabis And so to make it more approachable for people, they are attempting to break it down into these somewhat simplified categories. And they're still teaching people about indica and sativa as if it's this gospel when it's really not. And it really has a lot more to do with the terpene profiles that we're now learning about. But it's, yeah, it's this huge knowledge barrier for people. And so as someone who's built my career on educating the consumer you know, these type of new products that are microdosed and that are designed for specific functions, it really helps people out a lot. And it builds this bridge for them to be able to enjoy cannabis without having to take a class about it before they purchase something. So uh, in what context did you end up working on a dispensary? I had just returned to Santa Cruz and I was friendly with some people at Kind Peoples, which is a, a leading dispensary in town. And so I was interested in working there and helping them through the transition. So I worked there from, you know, fall of 2017 uh, through legalization through Jan 1. Um, I helped them get a bunch of PR and uh, we threw a big event at the store um, on January 1st. And uh, then I worked there like through 420. Um, It was really fascinating. You know, I had no idea like the complexity of what goes into running the back of house for a dispensary. It was very humbling, actually, to see the amount of work that goes into it. What what was the biggest surprise for you? The sheer number of people working behind the scenes. I mean, Kind Peoples at that point was employing 80 people, uh, a lot of them doing processing, a lot of them as bud tenders. Um, you know, just a tremendous amount of effort goes into organizing their menu systems. Um, so I think it's a lot of things that people just don't really think about. They kind of take that retail experience for granted. At the end of the show, I like to ask uh, everyone uh, the same set of questions. This is a segment uh, called Peak Experiences. The first question is, what is your ritual right now? Like, what is your favorite way uh, to enjoy cannabis in any form? I very consistently will smoke a joint at the end of the day. And it's usually like, you know, if I've gone out and I'm running some errands or whatever, and I get home and I'm, I'm getting ready to make dinner, you know, I like to have a nice joint that I share with my husband, you know, before we start cooking. Um, I think that's a pretty nice little ritual to get into. 
And uh, I enjoy my flowers. I enjoy sampling all kinds of different flowers. And um, recently, I've really been enjoying the uh, kosher kush from the Santa Cruz Veterans Alliance. That's one of my tried and true favorites, for sure. I like it, kosher kush. So for you, you're treating it a bit like wine, where you're like, well, we like to drink a glass of this. We like to smoke some flour. It probably varies year to year, season to season, like what that is. But the ritual is basically just rolling flowers into a joint. Yes. And the act of rolling a joint is something that I still really enjoy because you get to break up the flower, you get to smell all the terpenes, you get to create this little thing that's, um, you know, joints all have a different personality that's kind of related to the person that rolled them. So I always think it's interesting to see, you know, people's different little joints that they make. Well, um, between you and your husband, who is the primary roller? Oh, I am far superior. <laughs> okay. Has that ever has that ever been a question, or was it just accepted from the beginning that you are you are going to be rolling the joints? Oh, he accepts it. Um, yeah, I have to roll his joints for like when he goes out in public because he doesn't want to be embarrassed <sighs> by the ones that he rolls. We call them uh, skeleton fingers because <laughs> there's like usually a weird little lump in the middle. <laughs> Very nice. Um, what is a place uh, that is special for you? It doesn't have to be weed related. Anywhere in the world, uh, a place you come back to or has a special memory for you? Mm, honestly, the beaches here in Santa Cruz. Um, there's a beach right by Lighthouse uh, State Park called It's Beach, and that's where people take their dogs. And that was like one of the first places I visited in Santa Cruz where I smoked a joint. And um, it's still one of my favorite places to go. And just watch all the happy dogs and it's a super nice place. What's the, uh, what's the beach boardwalk there like now? I got jumped there when I was about 14. <laughs> um, it's like the Times Square of Santa Cruz. You know, okay. I feel like you only, you only really go there uh, if you got people in from out of town. I, I tend to avoid the boardwalk at all costs. When you get people in from out of town, uh, say friends from New York from college who are used to, eh, I smoke whatever, like the guy delivers in New York and they've got like a weekend in Santa Cruz. What kind of advice do you give them like going to a dispensary? Well, usually it's about what kind of experience are you looking for? What do you like? Um, what's local? You know, I feel like that's something that as our, as our culture becomes more homogenized nationwide. Um, there's still these local specialties when you go to different dispensaries in different places. Yeah. So I always recommend to people when they visit Santa Cruz, you know, try some of our local brands, our local companies, uh, people like Utopia. They make really excellent extracts and uh, healthy edibles. People like Big Pete's Treats, people like Santa Cruz Veterans Alliance. So, yeah, I always I always encourage people to go with what's local. Let me ask you a question. I'm getting off topic on my uh, peak experiences questions here, but do you think in any sort of a future we're ever going to, at least at the connoisseur's level, swing back towards weaker, less powerful, lower THC weed? Yes. And I think it's already happening now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're seeing a lot of these people who are baby boomers who maybe abstained for years and who are now coming back to cannabis they're not looking for 30% THC. They want 15 to 20% if that. They're also looking for CBD rich flowers. You know, that's probably more similar to the cannabis that they were getting in the 60s and 70s. I would also wonder if like on some level that's more the natural state of cannabis. I mean, what we're talking about now is like breeding to the very like edge of what's possible, but 
you know, people getting involved in edibles microdosing, the original microdosing was just smoking weed that wasn't very good. Exactly. And, you know, people who remember what a lid was <laughs> and like how you had to go through and, you know, separate all the seeds out of your weed. And it's like there was definitely really good weed in the 70s that got you super high. Like, you know, the things that people were bringing back from Vietnam and, you know, the things that people were bringing from Hawaii and, and breeding in California. But yes, I do think that smoking more CBD cannabis is going to be beneficial for people who are returning to using it. Um, or who are new to using it, you know, it just, it gives you, uh, an effect that isn't going to be as jangly or as heart racing as, um, some of the stronger strains of cannabis can be these days. Can you recommend a stoned viewing experience, movie or TV? Ooh, I just had, speaking of, uh, the Santa Cruz boardwalk, I did go there recently because they show free movies on the beach on a big inflatable screen and so they were showing Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And so, of course, I said, let's eat weed chocolate and go see Willy Wonka. Are we talking about the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka? Yes. Okay. Because oh, it would be the really original. weird if you went and saw the Johnny Depp Willy Wonka no. on the boardwalk. <laughs> but that would be very Santa Cruz Beach boardwalk in some sort of way if it was like screened inside the like Neptune's Castle amusement. <laughs> okay. So the Gene Wilder. Uh, yeah. And I Wonka. hadn't seen that movie since I was a kid. And it's definitely uh, it's definitely a weird movie. And uh, I really enjoyed seeing it while high. And so I could definitely recommend that to people is eat some weed chocolate and watch the original Willy Wonka. Very good. Can you recommend a snack, a favorite snack? Oh, man. Besides La Croix. <laughs> I love La Croix. What's what is your La Croix flavor of choice? I am a purist. I go pretty much like lemon or lime. You know, I don't like the other newfangled ones. It's but, weird. Um, when you said you're a purist, I thought you were going to say you go plain. No, plain is crazy. Plain is just ridiculous. I've been getting kind of into plain recently. I don't know. I just can't go that way. Um, I really like, yeah, I like La Croix. I get a lot of fine cheeses that I like to snack on, you know, cheese and crackers and carrot sticks and hummus and stuff like that. And always make sure that you have like healthy munchies around. <laughs> um, the big temptation here is tacos. I usually will go out for a taco and that's kind of my favorite munchie food. When do you predict uh, national legalization in America? Wow. I am hopeful that within five to 10 years, we will have national legal legalization. I think that once people see what's happening in California and there's just so many people now who have traveled to a legal state and experienced it for themselves that I think that they see there's nothing to really be afraid of. So I'm hopeful that, yeah, with, within the next five to 10 years, it'll be legal nationwide. Um, and that was something that was very interesting to me about Amsterdam. You know, I did visit Amsterdam quite a bit and it just, gives you this model of seeing how normalized cannabis use can function in society. And once that cat's out of the bag, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any way to go back. You know, I don't think you can make any good case for prohibiting cannabis at this point. Totally agree with you about Amsterdam. Uh, I used to go there with my parents a lot when I was a teenager. My, my parents lived there when they were on sabbatical. And the one thing about the Amsterdam model that, that feels to me like the missing ingredient is also creating a public space for consumption. Um, the sort of like cafe social element 
is really like for me what most of my memories of uh of weed in amsterdam are are the places where it takes place do you think there's any sort of a future for like weed cafes in america absolutely and uh, there's definitely some places where there is a consumption ordinance and you can have cannabis consumption yeah in Oakland and in San Francisco, there are lounges. There's it feels like there some... used to be more, actually, like in the Bay Area. And then they sort of all got shut down and maybe now they're coming back again. Yes, because you have to have a local municipality that has a consumption ordinance, which some places do. And so West right. Hollywood is going to be debuting some lounges, I think, I- I've pretty heard soon. About that. Yeah, I really look forward to that because it's so interesting that alcohol is this ubiquitous presence at every social interaction and you can get alcohol everywhere. And yet for cannabis, we still have to be smoking in like, you know, these alleyways and like you can't smoke in public and all of this stuff. So I think that we really need to have those kind of safe spaces for people to consume. And that once we do, and once we have that choice, I think you're going to see our society change quite a bit. Last question. Uh, what is one thing that you are still looking forward to in life, looking out over uh, the expanse of your future years? Oh, wow. I would love to run a cannabis bed and bre- breakfast at some point. Ooh. I think that's something I'm working towards. I like it. And, um, you, t- you, took, the- you took the cafe and you won up it and you're like, and you can sleep here. Yeah, I really want a place where people can come and just, you know, see a cannabis plant and like hang out in a cannabis garden and eat some really wonderful infused food and, um, you know, enjoy educational experiences. Um, So that's something that I'm definitely looking forward to, as well as on a macro level. I hope that psychedelics can help humanity work through some of the really tough issues that we have right now. And that's why I very much support my friends who are working at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and they are continuing to push the boundaries. And we really need that right now, I think, in our society with just these tremendous problems that are going on. I think that psychedelics present one of the only ways to really get people to change their minds. Where can uh, people who want to find you online uh, find your stuff? You can find me on Instagram at cannabis edibles four twenty. Um, on wow, that's Twitter. a hot, that's a hot handle. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm very surprised that someone had not already squatted on that. <laughs> I got there first. It's been a while, and people can also find me at my website is elisemcdonough.com. And what was the um, Bong Appetit book? What's the title? It's just called Bong Appetit. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Stoner was edited by Justine Dom, who also helps produce the show. I'm your host, Aaron Lammer. If you want to get in touch, it's hi at stoner.co. We're always looking for sponsors. Uh, Stoner comes out every single Tuesday. So please subscribe, tell friends. See you next week.